Unlock the full potential with your business with Leadershipity. Our proven strategies have fueled growth for countless organizations. Ready to elevate your leadership and scale your success? Book your free 15-minute consultation now. Click the link in the show notes below and let's make your business soar. Hello, welcome to the Winner's Find Away Show. I am your host, Trent Clark, and super pumped up today about my special guest, Mike Dempsey. Mike, how you doing? Doing well, man. Doing well. Friday morning, got over my Super Bowl hangover from Las Vegas, so I'm fine now. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, and we are coming off a massive week in sport, obviously, the Super Bowl. As you know, I am a longtime serial entrepreneur, written a recent book called Leading Winning Teams, which will be coming out in August. I'm super excited about that. Most people know me more probably from my coaching and professional baseball in 13 years and three World Series. So I am always pumped up to talk leadership, to talk teams. And man, Mike has got a great story about his background. He is very philanthropic. This guy has done tons of work for charity. He's a Wall Street guy. He's a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. He's an NFL alumni expert. And man, and and of course, what's interesting is, you know, and I never thought about this, Mike, but like, man, you 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 pivoted from sport in into being the risk management, which you know, by the way, sport's all about risk management, right? We are constantly weighing our options and figuring it out. And and of course, you know, it, it's natural when you're being coached, coached into it. Like, hey, is this a good risk? Like you're, you're calculating and, you know, I'm always coaching our, our youth kids, right? And I'm like telling our quarterback, hey, listen, you throw the ball where our guy can catch it or no one can catch it, right? Because this is our risk management. Like you, you can't float it over the middle. There's things that just go bad, right? So tell me, tell, tell, the, tell the audience a little bit about, how you man as this as this NFL guy, and I want, and we're going to talk a little bit about your story about how you climbed to that. But like, how all of a sudden you made this very quick pivot from, hey, I knew this world to this world of business and risk management. It was actually dumb luck, I got to admit. I like to say it was all calculated, but you know, here it was in Tampa Bay. It was released in October '96, and now I'm looking for what am I going to do next. You know, I'm 25 years old. I don't know what's, what's ahead for me. And I tried professional wrestling at this place called the Paraplant in Atlanta with WCW. It lasted about four days until I got dropped on my head. One of my many, many concussions and I almost got paralyzed. So I came back home to Tampa and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And there was a firm called Solomon Brothers that had relocated from Wall Street, moved a lot of their operations and finance and everything else, back street, back office down to Tampa, Florida from New York. So it was kind of split operation. And I just well, luckily ended up because I had the New York accent. It worked out pretty well that they took a flyer and a guy that had no knowledge of Wall Street. And it's just, I kind of fell into it. And, but as he said, risk management, I think my whole life has been a little bit about risk management, taking calculated risks. And, you know, I'm also a terrorism survivor. I was in 9-11. In the World Trade Center. So that's a little bit of risk management there. And when you're going through a scenario like that, when the building was hit and how you get out of the building, and it's kind of funny, right? By in a way, on a tragic situation where it's a personal situation of safety, when you try to get out of the building, you don't know what happened. Uh, something hit the building. You don't know if it was a bomb or a plane. We didn't have TVs in the World Trade Center. 
I was working on the top uh, floor of Five World Trade Center, which was connected to one. This was obviously 9-11 and I uh, got out. I was looking for my wife, uh, trying to get a hold of her. She worked on the hundred floor of Tower One, Marsh McLennan. She was late to work, but I didn't have, we didn't have a cell phone things going like we did today, you know? So remember I got into the building, into Tower One. Instead of going out on BC Street, which was the easiest exit out of Five World Trade Center, I went right back into the lobby of One World Trade Center to try to find her. I remember asking the security guy, could I go up the elevator? Well, the elevator glass was all blown out. It was about nine o'clock in the morning at that point where the firefighters had first arrived. And you know, something was going on. There was smoke. Again, I didn't know what plane hit the building, did not know exactly what the issue was. So I try to think uh, strategically, well, let me get out and try to get my phone. Had no signal. We know why. But so I go out by the other side of the World Trade Center complex. It was a record store called Sam Goody for the people that knew records back in the day. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's Sam Goody. Yeah. They had a cool commercial. <laughs> and I went out by that. That was on Liberty and Greenwich Street. So that was two World Trade Center. I remember I got out the building. It must have been right at 9.03 a.m. As we know, 9.03 a.m., the second plate. As I got out, it's like when you're in a dream and you're frozen and you can't move and you're paralyzed. Is that, built, uh, that second plane was barreling into two World Trade Center. Went right over the Bankers Trust building, which is 130 Liberty Street. A uh, very low trajectory. The first plane was a little higher. The second one came in really low. And I just remember seeing it paralyzed by fear about what the heck was going on. You heard the noise and you can see, I could actually see right, the last image I remember is being able to like see the plane, like see, like almost not, can't say I see the cockpit, but really up close and people were running the other direction and I was trampled, but I was pushed face forward into the concrete. And I don't remember anything until I was woken up in city hall park about nine 32, which was like, wow. So 29 minutes later, I was semi-conscious by a guy named Jerry Warner down at Two World Trade Center. I mean, sorry, in City Hall Park. And I was taken to NYU downtown Beekman Hospital. But I have no memory of that whole, like a blackout. It's like going out drinking and waking up the next day. <laughs> that was kind of my my story. So but for this is crazy. So, so, so you're, you're both, both you and your spouse at the time, pretty young couple, you're you know, you're now, you know, about, about 30 when this whole thing happens. Cause you're about five years removed from the NFL. Are you, are you still with Solomon brothers at that point? Credit Swiss first Boston. Credit Swiss Boston. So, you know, I, I think, I think there's a couple of things that happen here, right? Well, well, first of all, one is, is Solomon brothers see, you know, New York term, they see like, Hey, here's this young New York guy, NFL. He's been trained. He's been coached. Like we're going to put him into our program and we're going to train him and coach him like they can. And he knows how to get that. Like, so that's always incredible to me that some of these firms really recognize that ability and, and take you in under their wing with, like you said, not a lot. What, what is your degree? You, you, you graduated from Albany. Is that right? Why well, had a sociology degree. So let's just say that when I bounced around and, you know, the story of college football was remarkable too, because I had taken a walk on opportunity at Boston University. Yeah, being 18 at the time, the coach, Coach Ford said, hey, you know, hey, I'm going to give you this walk-on opportunity and you should be, I thought it was a guarantee for a scholarship, right? So I thought I was good. Unfortunately, that did not happen. I was actually, Chris Palmer was the Boston University head coach. He actually uh, coached in the NFL, Cleveland Browns. And so I thought at 18, 
a great academic school, B, BU. Yep. Yeah, yep. football and they they sell you right and walk on opportunity. I remember University of Florida had the same thing. They were more realistic about my odds of making the University of Florida Gators, which was, you know, it was kind of like a ten to one, whatever. So Boston, it felt like it was one to one, right? I thought it was. I was thinking a very good calculated risk. Unfortunately, rolled over my ankle and came. They also put me at defensive tackle, and I was undersized. I was two hundred and twenty six pounds, soaking wet. I was a better, more, should have been playing linebacker, but they felt, oh, we could play B-tackle and whatever coach decided that. And I was not having a good camp anyway, but when I rolled over my ankle and I couldn't compete the next two days, I was cut. And then that will cost me my parents, not me, because I was 18. It cost us about eleven, twelve thousand $12,000. And I had to, so finish the semester. I transferred back home to New York City to a city university, which was like a thousand whatever helpers, um, which really I just had a baseball team, which I played baseball, but no football team. My parents made me pay back that that eleven thousand, twelve thousand dollars. I had to work more summer coping battery tunnel, taking tolls. Not a great job as a when you're a young man with interest too. My mom made me pay interest on the money too, which is great. So I think wow, we're gonna give that we're gonna give that money lesson right there, bro. That is how money works, right? <laughs> Yeah, she made me back every bit of it. So I didn't have the summers that most kids had in college. So I had to pay off. Yeah. Working seven to three shifts at the Brooklyn Barry Tunnel with the films. Not exactly the ideal, but it's yeah. about accountability. I took a gamble on something and it didn't pay off. And then really for me, the payoff was that I was in Baruch and I played baseball. I hadn't played in four years. I, I missed a little high school playing baseball because I could only play football. My coach would not allow us to play baseball. Yeah which I think is awful. I think kids should play multiple sports, right? Yeah, but, right. I agree. Um, but I got to play. So I actually made the baseball team after uh, four. And that's, that's incredible itself. You think about it, you took baseball. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but to miss all that timing there, those years from like 13 to 17 and not play ball and then meet the team at 18 in college, I think I would have had a better career looking back at baseball, but I had to choose one sport at that point. So I was playing, actually, you played baseball at Brook in my freshman year. But then I transferred to Albany. Albany was a Division three school, but my the defensive coordinator, he was a graduate of my high school, so I had an opportunity to come in right away. I knew I was going to play, and I didn't want to sit the bench. You know, I knew yep. that at Boston, I was like five deep, and I said there was no way I was going to ever get any playing time through probably that three, four years I was going to play at B or so. I came into the D3 school, got the opportunity, middle linebacker. Had a great career there. And then by luck or whatever you want to call it, why transit credits a number of times, right? You go from three schools in one year, you lose credits. Like not all those credits, although Baruch was a great business school, well, all those credits did not transfer over to Albany for whatever reasons, all these standards were a little different than Baruch and I lose credits. So I'm trying to graduate on time, did not graduate on time. I'm up there, summer 93 up in Albany, very few people up there in Albany Firebirds, a real football team there at our facility practicing, right? They're having, and that's where they did some of their practices and they were two guys down for the season. I was the only person there on campus that had the football pedigree to step into, they needed a body. I was a body, right? It's like a body double. <laughs> that was the guy. So within, I had no plans on graduation and within uh, a week, I was a professional football player. So it worked out. It was like timing. It took a, again, everything's a risk management. You kind of calculate the risks. Why well, I had no other real so I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was making something. And uh, three weeks later, had my first devastating injury. Uh, I was actually the week before I would have had some real playing time 
in a game, professional football game, I tore my ACL meniscus, two pops. It wasn't just one pop, it was two pops, non-contact. My cleat got stuck in turf, which always happens, as you know, back in that. And Oh, uh, yeah, that's all turf is terrible. But everything was over, so I was pretty much down and out until I uh, got the opportunity two years later, I think, got Dabra uh, graft, the ACO, and that was a longer, it was supposed to be a quicker recovery, but it took longer stability of the, obviously was little impacted, so I couldn't really cut and couldn't really run a field. Like, so it was around the uh, spring of 95 where I got the opportunity of Buccaneers from getting Lee Steinberg, who made a phone call for me. And the rest was history. So that year I was on physically unable to perform because I couldn't pass it physically. Wasn't really ready yet, but 96 got on practice squad and I was cut after October. In the middle of October, and I thought, oh my God, everything is over. What do I do next? That's how I ended up with the Solomon Brothers. That was the preamble to, but like you said, pivoting. You got to pivot. And yeah, Brooklyn, growing up in Brooklyn, in probably a poor, underprivileged environment like I did, you got to learn how to feed. Like, you know, and so it was the survival skills that you learned growing up that kind of took me through all this transition when I was a young man in my 20s. And I would say all the risk management stuff that I do now in my corporate career was really life is all about risk magic, calculated risks. And you got to assess and assess what your risk appetite is, right? You got to know what your risk appetite is. And I'm at a stage now where I'm, you know, now in my uh, 52 going on 53 and, you know, I'm not about wealth accumulation. I'm not going to buy a business. I'm not going to do this and that. I'm more about wealth preservation, right? So we always got to play risk management in our personal lives and that's how I've always uh, lived my life, you know? So I've had a pretty exciting life, but I've always managed my risk as best I can. So. Yeah, you've been involved with tons of big philanthropic efforts, right? And your your athletic background has always kind of served as, because you've, you've been involved with things like, you, you know, the Super Bowl, you know, flag football then. You know, I remember my son, my son called me, he's going to GCU down in Phoenix and I was down there. Of course, we were down in the Super Bowl together last year. And my son's like, hey, Mike's over here playing on the <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, who's over there? Like, Tracy McGrady, you know, and my son's all excited yeah. about it. Like, and they were playing over at the soccer complex, right? That big, is that what they did? Like, what did they play in the middle church? It's a cool it spot, right? Out. It was a cold out game. I mean, I'll tell you what, one of the thrills for me was coming out of that tunnel. I only got in on the roster of that game last, about a, we could tell before, again, an opportunity came and I grabbed it and I didn't realize how big game Celebrity Sweat was. It was like their 20 game. Now they've done 24 and man, being on their field, I really had a moment there because I'm on team Tracy McGrady. We're playing RG3 or uh, Robert Griffin third, incredible. But then I'm looking across the field. There was one point in the game where it really was like, wow, I got Doug Flutie and I got Andre Reed. I'm covering Andre Reed. And I'm like, this is incredible. Like I get this opportunity <laughs> to... And the first series of the game, KJ Osborne played the Vikings. He's a Vikings wide receiver. He caught one over my head 20. I mean, beautiful pass to RB3 through. I, I, I covered him, man to man. I mean, I said, if a 26 year old guy can catch a pass over 52 year old guys, then give it to him, you know. But it was incredible just the adrenaline. And I was gassed, but I'll tell you what, the adrenaline took over. And I played, I remember Rod Briggle, he was, he wanted to start on defense. And it was like the Bella Twins. And it was like, and I said, Rob, why don't you go to Cyber and entertain the troops? You know, he's a former U.S. Marine Corps uh, veteran. And I said, I want this opportunity. So I started the game. And that's the athletic side of me that I want to be the spotlight. I'll be honest, pregame, I was there throwing the ball to T-Mac and everybody just to get on the, the spotlight on TV. Because, you know, they're filming this thing. 
And I wanted all that, all that energy just really was so incredible. Now I couldn't feel my legs for about three or four days later when I came home, but <laughs> that's the type of adrenaline. Like when I did my boxing match, you know, I did a charity boxing endeavor. I met up with Jerry Cooney. We were Mark Wahlberg's uh, charity day event at end of 2019. And Jerry Cooney and I came up with this uh, brilliant idea, not for me, I don't know, to get in the ring with Jerry for, to help his charity, YCS, it's Youth Consultation Services in Hoboken, New Jersey. And Jerry would put on a fight night and Jerry would get in the ring at 60, whatever years old and trade gloves with a guy like me, right? A Wall Street guy or whatever you want to call it. But we felt like we could market it, Dempsey, Jack Dempsey, call it Baby Jack. Whereas this Cooney, and it was going to be Jerry's last time in the ring. I said, what a great thing to get a ring with your hero. And we started the training. I hadn't done boxing in 27, 27 years. So it was a little bit of rust, ring rust when I got in there with Jerry. Jerry showed me in training that better be at your best because he was giving me those left hooks. And Jerry, remember, he had a devastating left hook. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah are, so you, are you are you related to Jack Dempsey? No, no. It was funny no. because Jerry put out put it out there and some boxing writer, if you Google somewhere, it says the the grand I don't know. I don't know if it's a grandson or a relative Jack Dempsey. I never said that. It was Jerry's joke of a nickname. And yeah. Right that they ran with that on the World Boxing News website that the relative of Jack Dempsey. Like, where did that maybe we are related, but in Irish families, it could be a six yeah. and a cousin or something like that. So maybe yeah. we are. I see Patrick Dempsey at events, and I'm like, hey, my cousin Patrick, and we joke, but <laughs> how's your cousin Patrick doing? I'm like, he's not really my real cousin. If there's an inheritance, I want to find if there's a relation to him, so we'll see. But I got serious about it, but I wanted to be of my best. I didn't want to go in there and just slap gloves. A lot of these celebrity boxing events, they're just, it's a joke. Like, you get a big fat yeah. guy, you know, just doing this. And I wanted, I took it seriously. I trained with Antonio Tarver, the magic man. The guy was a Rocky Balboa movie, cruiserweight champion, light heavyweight champion. I mean, I really took the thing seriously. Bernard Hopkins, I got trained, but then I found Irish Mickey Ward. <clears throat> Irish Mickey Ward, I could relate to because Irish Mickey Ward was the guy, it was a journeyman fighter, right? And he got the best out of his career. He was in the biggest trilogy of all time with a guy named Arturo Gatti. And if you look, if you love boxing, you haven't seen the, the trilogy, especially the first fight, the 10th round with Gatti and Ward, one of the most incredible boxing things of, and they made a movie called Fighter. Yeah movie Christian Bale and Mark Wahlberg, Marky Mark was played Mickey. So Mickey and I had been friends for many years. And as the fight got canceled, COVID happened, Jerry Torres rotated cuff. I wasn't giving up to this kind of Once I invested in something, I'm going to finish the story somehow. And I went from choosing Tim Witherspoon as a replacement opponent. Tim couldn't do it. It, I uh, went through four or five opponents. And then I almost had the dream scenario where I was going to do up in Albany where I played football. My college football teammate, Tim Rankins, had a promotion called Cage Wars, Mike Tyson fight night. He was hosting. Tyson was going to be the commentator. I knew Mike. And I'm like, this is incredible. Mike Tyson's going to commentate on my boxing card. He's going to bring Mickey there. And everything was good until two weeks before when the boxing card got canceled by the New York State Boxing Commission. And it was just an MMA fight, right? So I still went up there to see Mike. And I was like, I'm not going to pass up an option to hang out with Mike Tyson. But I'm up there in Schenectady. Rivers Casino and hanging out with Tyson during the day. I got these cool pictures or, and I'm in my hotel room and I'm like, just done. I'm like, I'm feeling so deflated. I got no boxing. I got a torn meniscus in my left knee. 
I know I need surgery soon. How do I finish this? Trisha Morrison, who is the widow of Tommy, the Duke Morrison, right? She messaged me, hey, Mike, what happened to the Cooney fight? She didn't know the backstory. I told her what happened. She goes, what about like Richie Lamontine, Richie the Mountain? I'm like, who is Richie the Mountain? Everett, Massachusetts, lives right near Mickey Ward. I still act yep. in a game with Aaron. She goes, why don't you reach out to Richie? I'm like, never thought of that because I didn't know where she was until I looked him up. I saw 29 and 4. Three time cruiserweight champion. I'm like Mark Bowles in GQ magazine. He had like the Robert De Niro movie credits. It's perfect. A guy like that. We could really make something marketable. Yeah. For a team Mickey Ward charity is a good idea. Do it at Mickey's gym. Mickey was prom- always promised me that. So I got to finish the story by doing this thing in 10 days. And I knew I had, didn't have a lot to go. I was getting out of shape a little bit, but I said, I got to finish the story, get in the ring and bring my best. And we put it together. And the only thing is Richie didn't get the memo that it was, it was an exhibition, which means I didn't really, I didn't have enough to really go full. So that first round, I left my mouthpiece at home. So I had to buy a thick sporting goods last minute, but you know, that mouthpiece is not really molded in a lesson that that mouthpiece, you better get a really good mouthpiece when you're getting in the ring because uh, the first punch of the fight right in the mouth and it's hanging out. And I got like, and I had Dickie Eklund worked in my corner. So Dickie. Who was in the movie Fighter when they uh, portrayed him at Christian Bale? He did a hell of a job because Dickie is crazy. Anybody that knows Dickie Eklund, Dickie, that was the best, coolest part having Dickie in my corner. I don't know if Dickie was rooting for me or the other guy because Dickie kept, uh, it was almost like he was giving the other guy more coaching than me. But <laughs> we had, we faced on Mark Wahlberg before the fight. It was incredible because Mark couldn't be there, but we had Mickey as the referee. And I went through three rounds, man. It was like the coolest, uh, it was authentic. You should watch the fight. And you will definitely see that all the punches were real. It's not professional wrestling, no thing scripted. And I understood yeah. Apollo Creed and Rocky in the first movie. I don't have to win by winning. By winning, it was about right being a leader. Like I finished the fight on my feet. And it was, yeah. that was incredible. I took every, I couldn't go four rounds, honestly. At the end of the third round, I was done. But I made it the three rounds and my adrenaline took me through. I was gassed out by the end, but I made it through. Finish the story on my terms, like baseball. We talked yesterday about I had this incredible opportunity working with the Yankees over many, many years after football. And I got I started playing competitive baseball in my 40s. And I wore number 49 for Ron Kidry, Louisiana Lightning. Incredible guy who coached me. I was one of the numbers that said, I don't want to play baseball beyond 49. There's always a time and place where you can't see the ball anymore, like his vision goes. I don't want to play Paris. And then they had this uh, Field of Dreams game with the Yankees and White Sox. It was postponed the one year, 2020 COVID. They had a 2021. Well, they timed it right before my 50th birthday. And I said, I got to take my dad. We got to have that cat. And we, me and my dad got down there. I didn't have a ticket to the game. I don't care about the game. It was all about getting on the field with my dad and having a catch. I don't care about the White Sox. Yeah, I may do, but. I wasn't there for the game. I'm there for my moment to with my dad to have this reenact this moment, having a catch in the field and everything. So we get down there and it was like a hundred degrees in Iowa. I didn't realize how hot Iowa is in some It point. can get, yeah, it can get. I'm main dropping all these guys for the Yankees, Ray Levine, just trying to get into the thing. And they were like, your name's not on the list because Kevin Costa was coming that night to film the promo. Remember that promo he did before the game? They were coming yeah. that day before. Now I realized why they were, it was very exclusive to get in there. And right out of clear blue sky, like in the movie, Dwyer Brown, who played the dad, I see Dwyer, met him one time at Cooperstown. I knew this guy, Stephen Costello, who was his agent. And I said, hey, Dwyer, Mike Dempsey. And like, how's he going to let me? I said, Stephen Costello, your guy, 
you know, I was sorry. I go, oh man, we were like, now we're like bros. Hey, Dwyer, man, good to see you. Hey, my, my dad, you know, I'm better and we're trying to get in. We're supposed to be on a list. As simple as, hey, come with me. And all of a sudden now we're in there. We're in the field of dreams. We have to catch. And it was great. I'm like, check the box. Now, now as a guy who likes these videos and moments, the day after the field of dreams game, I was going to head back to uh, Chicago to celebrate my friend, Brett Raymer, tanks, animal planet guy. My 50th, but I'm still 49 for one more day. I said, Dad, let's go back to the field. I feel like we need to do this again and just get more of that video of the, the cornfields. I just didn't, it was too rushed. It was like everything was so quick. Every yeah. way people around. So now we go back to the field. I got to admit this. I'm saying, oh, I have statute of limitations. I can say that I did. I, I lied. We, I said for the guy at the gate, or as my dad, hey, my dad, we, he lost his Marine Corps ring. We need to find it by the bench where they filmed the movie, you know. <laughs> You go right in. So we go into the, by the bench area. Now everybody's looking for the ring. Ring was never lost, but now it's like a whole six security guys uh, looking for a ring. And I'm like, oh, so bad. My dad's like, why are you doing this? I said, just hang in there, dad. This is, it's coming. And I asked the lady, I said, listen, can you take a video of me and my dad throwing a ball or whatever? He said, the ring's not that big of a deal, sentimental, but it's not worth really worth much. But love to have that video. That made a lot to my dad. She took it. It was incredible. Now we had the time. Now we got the moment on video, which is great. I said, Dad, let's just walk through the cornfields. We did that for about an hour or two. We were just hanging out, watching the field. The field member was not at the actual field of dreams where they filmed the movie. It was like a yeah. cross way. So we got yeah, to the other side. Yep. Yeah. We got to do a whole walk and see that. And it was incredible. On the way back, there was this guy, Rocco. You can't make it up. Rocco from Philly, who was like the construction engineer, the guy who's taken down the the field, right? Taking out the stuff. And he's got his whole career. So Rocco was talking about, you know, cheesesteaks or whatever. And all of a sudden you see a game break out. That's what Field of Dreams is all about, right? You go now to the field, you get this. It was an incredible. So I go to center field, center field, I got my glove, checking some balls there. Incredible. At 49 years old, the last day at 49, yeah. I'm getting to, and then I said, Hey, Rocco, can I get a round in the cage there? And like, just not really the cage, but on the field. It takes some swings and he goes, yeah, go right ahead. I had the lady videotape it. It was the seventh swing. I hit it, line drive into the cornfields. I got it on video. It was the last hit, last hit of my career. I will not take another swing again. So my last hit was a home run in the field of dreams. And I said it last nice. really had was with my dad. So I close the story of my terms and that's always about what I, so I try to do it. Like I'm going to leave on my terms, something that I love. I love baseball. Um, but honestly, I don't miss playing the game anymore. I know I'm too old to really have the reflexes to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. I'm smart enough for risk management, right? to know that don't put me in the box with a guy throwing heat anymore. But you know, it was great because I, Ron Gidry loves that story because I was number 49. I did it on the last day, 49 years old. I always think the gods, everything was meant to be. See with boxing, like the journey from 20 in the beginning through Antonio Tarver, Tim Witherspoon, all the way through with Irish Vicky Ward. It was meant to be. So that yep. was an ending to the, to my story personally. So, but yeah. That's very cool. Like when, when we talk about like, you kind of touched on this before, like the, it's, it's really tough to go back into sport after a hiatus, right? Like after you take a break and, you know, you, you hit it on the head, I think earlier when you said, man, you know, make a college team when you didn't, you took the high school years off, which is a ton of development time, right? But you're, you're, you were doing other sports. So you were developing, you're cross training that, that like, it's a big difference. And, you know, I think about Michael Jordan, 
you know, I was in spring training in 1994 when Michael was there and, you know, we were, we were the White Sox were in Sarasota. I was with Detroit in, in Lakeland. And so we saw each other a lot, right? Like, so we're playing a lot and, you know, Michael's a great athlete, right? But like he, this gap of like high school now to pro ball, like, and, and, and he's like going from 18 to probably like 30 or 32 or something like he's not. So it's, so it's a bigger gap, right? It's yep. a longer extent. And he missed uh, the college, you know, the college development, right? The, the really next level. So you can see the fundamentals of Michael Jordan are kind of there, but it's just, it's just too much of a gap to overcome. Like the, 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 the speed of it. And, and maybe if you give Michael Jordan, maybe two or three more years, like it might've come like, but oh, he he's also, yeah. yeah. And I think, I, I think it's also, it, it also would have made a difference if it was Michael Jordan, 25, Michael Jordan, right. as opposed to 32, because the three years, Michael would have been 35 instead of 28. I mean, at 28, he, he'd have been, yeah, like it was, it was pretty impressive what he could do in a very short time. At the same time, for the people like us on the inside, you know, you could see a massive gap. Uh, and it's the little things, right? Like, you know, it's the, it's the little things like in boxing that people don't really see on TV. They're going, oh, he dropped that left another inch. He's going to freaking get lights out. Like, and you don't realize like this to here, here to here is like, uh oh, like, right. And so it's, it's cool. Let's, let's talk about risk management a little bit in, in the entrepreneurial and, and athletic world, right? People, people are out there and they're, they're trying to figure out, man, it feels like we're in a constant flux of change. You know, technology has brought everything changing, you know, for people that are out there right now and, and it's going, and it feels like it's going fast. How, how does one really get a stronghold on good risk management when, when they're trying to move towards something, where should some of the key things they be thinking about in a, in a very dynamic environment now, which I think is very different than when you and I are kids, we're pretty close to the age. I mean, Things move slower, man. I mean, you could talk about it, but technology changed those things. And it's probably the one major advantage to me of the, the 24 to 30-year-olds now is that they have been raised in a constant flux of change. Right. And, and adaptive is just standard because don't get too comfortable with any technology because it's going to change in two, three years, you'll be doing something different. So... For people that are out there and, and they're having to adjust that and, and work inside that, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, I think you nailed it with change, but I think the, other, the key term that I've always used in my professional speaking of corporate risk management is resiliency. Yeah. You got to be resilient. You got to think proactively rather than reactively, right? If you, you got to have that mindset to have always think proactively, anticipate the unexpected. Uh, it's like what we try to do, we call scenario analysis and risk management. We try to have like war game scenarios of what, what, what can go wrong. You always got to think ahead, anticipate the unexpected. And if you prepare for that business continuity, nobody could have expected 9-11, the World Trade Center, right? But now you do these scenarios, you think in risk management, what could happen if a building is lost? Nobody thought about that 30 um, plus years ago, right? But it happened. So what happened? Yeah. With COVID, the pandemic, I mean, that. We never thought of a scenario like COVID to ever happen in this world. And when it happened, it was like, okay, we're all working from home. 
nobody ever thought that could actually happen. So you always got to be anticipate the unexpected, be resilient personally, and uh, you build that resiliency framework in your mindset. And that's like how I did when I lost that fight. I kept going. I'm like, well, I'm not done. I'll fight myself. And, you know, if I have to, I could have done that. Way, but I would have been, I don't know who would have won me versus myself, but, but you have to. Fight club. Yeah. <laughs> fight club. Yeah, exactly. But that, that's how you always got to think. I think you got to be resilient and build that in organization, build resiliency. But personally, you need to be a resilient person in order to be a leader and survive and get and be the winner. So. I love this. So when we really talk about this, when we talk about being resilient, one of the first things about risk management is know where you want to go. I mean, I see a lot of organizations and a lot of team people out there that if you want to get somewhere, be, get, get very clear about where you want to go, like what you're going for. If you're, if you're gray on it, you're like, oh, well, we kind of want to go over there. Well, over there is not specific, right? You want to go to this place connected in New York. We want to be on this date. We want to be doing this many things. We want this many fans in the audience. Like you get very specific about what you want first. So two, what I heard Mike just say, which I think a lot of organizations are missing, is that we're setting goals and we're setting execution strategies around the intended consequence, which is great. It's exactly what we should be doing. What he's talking about, War Games is talking about the unintended consequences, right? We're going to make choices along the way and things are not going to work out. And when they don't work out, what's the unintended consequence of that? You know, and I, I think... Yo, you and I may have talked a little bit about it yesterday because I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Michigan. I'm in Michigan today. I'm in Commerce Township today. And, and the, the unintended consequence, right? We love Dan Campbell. We love our Lions and we go into the, the, you know, the chance for the Lions to be in the Super Bowl. There's six minutes to go and we're going to go for it on fourth down. And you're like, oh man, this is what the Lions have done. You know, like we've done this. Like this is, but that risk management goes, Man, we know what the intended consequence is. Get the first down, get closer, a sure field goal, tie the game, or better, keep the drive alive and score a touchdown and go ahead. The unintended is we miss, give up a field goal, two, now we need a touchdown, or worse, they score a touchdown, now we're two scores and we got no clock left, right? So right. We, we, we run into that risk danger of what ifs all the time. And what, what, what most people don't know and what Mike's alluding to when he's talking war games, those, those scenarios are not run on Sunday during timeouts. Those, sun, those, those war games are run Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in prep of the game to talk about if we get in the scenario, what, you know, let's, let's D&D. Let's discuss and decide what we'll do in this scenario. We have this situation inside this yard line. Like, hey, if it's between the 45 and the 35, you know, we, we, we may not feel that fully confident in our kicker from that distance. So we, we, we're more willing to go for it there. But if it's inside this, this is where we got to, you know, take the points. And all those things are being tracked pregame in, in, in risk management of what's about to happen because no one's going to decide that. Right. It's that good, people. We don't make good decisions on a 90-second timeout. Like this isn't the time to consider, hey, I never thought this would happen. What do you think we should do? You're probably not going to make under that kind of duress and stress. Is that is that what you recognize from your past, Mike? Think about Super Bowl overtime, right? That the Chiefs knew what they want to do overtime with the who gets the ball first. The 49ers did not know, right? They didn't, yep. uh, they didn't prepare 
for. And I think that was a key decision. You don't want Mahomes, you know, having that. So the Foyt has got the ball first, but maybe it should have been the other way, right? So yeah, well, I kind of knew it was going to happen. I think everybody I was sitting with at the game said, we know they're coming back. And I think that was, I saw that. I was thinking the same thing about the analogy with the Dan Campbell. I think that was just the preparation they didn't really assess. And again, it was like that, that kind of ended up being determinant in the game. And sometimes that's the difference between winning and losing. So I think that's really yeah. where, so that's a good point. Yeah, there's a lot of, and listen, there's a lot of determinants in the game. Like, right, folks? Like, if you're out there and, you know, I think one of the challenges of sport is we all go, man, I, I can't believe, you know, Trent missed that shot in the last three seconds of the game. And you're like, hey, are we talking about Bill's 12 turnovers in the first half? <laughs> like, like, right. like, we got in a situation down 12 down because we made a lot of execution errors early in the game. And they all count in the 60 minutes of the game, right? Like, it all matters. And so I get a little bent on people who are like, oh, well, you made a bad decision at the end of the game. And I'm like, well, there's about 40 bad decisions, about, you know, 80 bad plays, right? So we're all adapting and overcoming. Real quick before we go, you know, you you have had such a heart for for for, for philanthropy. And I want to talk a little bit about... You know, the group that really got you involved to give back. I mean, obviously you've had, you, and, and most people don't know this about you, Mike. You you actually were a, you know, 9-11 survivor, of course, from the World Trade Center. But you were also in Las Vegas the day of the terrorist shooting where, you know, the, well, I, I don't know, a terrorist, maybe domestic, this wild person decided like he's going to shoot into a crowd. And, oh, terrorism. And, and, I call that, I call that terrorism. It was domestic terrorism, like the Oklahoma City sure. bomber, right? That. 100%. 100%. But I just happened, it was like Forrest Gump. I just happened to be there. I was filming a show called Tanked Animal Planet with my friend Brett Raymer that weekend. I was supposed to go to Scott. Well, I did make it to Scott Bay. It was a golf event that Monday after the shooting in LA. So it was just intended to be a weekend layover kind of thing. Stayed in Lake Bay. My friend who I met for drinks at uh, nine o'clock at night by 10 o'clock, he was trying to find a tram back to Excalibur. I didn't know where the tram was. I know go to Excalibur, no offense to Excalibur Hotel, but I couldn't find a tram for him. And we walked outside uh, by the fountains, but in front of the Mandalay Bay about 10 o'clock and heard what we were like, uh, pop, 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 or fireworks. And the next round, I believe the guy changed windows. And I think that's kind of what he did. He went from one window to the other to get a better or whatever. And that was loud. And I heard after what number of shots being fired, we didn't know where it was coming from. You hear it over your head, but you don't know where. And I heard someone say sniper. And all of a sudden we're running back to the hotel and locked down. I mean, it was a crazy scenario. And again, I was risk management as well. Because I'm, and I'm thinking, well, let me run back to my, to the elevator to get to my room. And I got on the elevator with three, four people. And we, then we heard these deafening screams. It's like 15, 20 minutes later. Cause they, Initial reaction when this happened, I go back into the casino. Is fireworks? Is this fireworks? Right? Like, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, fireworks. Like, sniper, there's a sniper out there, and the guy's like, "Yeah, okay, you know, like, tell me another one, pull my leg." You know, I'm like, "No, there's." I couldn't get a reaction out of any of those, and I said that to the cops when uh, it has to be my report. Is there was like everybody? It was like about ten minutes. Everybody just gambling and. Nobody was doing anything. And it was about 15, 20 minutes went by during that whole time of the shooting. Then it got real very quickly when it was almost like uh, you see people, the SWAT teams coming in, but it was a delayed reaction 
And even the elevator, when I tell I got to the elevator, you know, then I was on the elevator with these three people and I heard your screams at that point, people running in from the concert, I believe, into the hotel. It's about 10 minutes later and I'm on the elevator and I hear I, the doors are closing. It was like Halloween movie, right? With Michael Myers and the door closes, then the door opens and screams. I thought they were, the shooter was right behind there, but it was security getting us off the elevator. That was a one point where I, my heart just jumped. I'm like, okay, we're dead. But it was a crazy scenario and just getting out of there was one of those. So you happen to be in either the wrong place at the wrong time, but I consider myself lucky more than unlucky because I'm here. Right. So uh, you can either take it as, uh, you know, what's that movie called Unbreakable with Bruce Willis. Maybe I'm like the living version of that, but I think it's not just what I did on 9-11 and Vegas. I think my whole life I've had this try to be like my friend Vince Papali, we call him Invincible. You know, you try to be somebody who's going to be resilient in their life. And when one door shuts, like you're going to find another door to get it open again and finish. And uh, whether it was 9-11, all these setbacks became comebacks for me, right? So I'm finishing, finished baseball on my terms. I finished boxing, football. I want to play one last game, you know, next year in New Orleans to be on the field and have Drew Brees and Kurt Warner and these guys throwing balls to me. I want to do it on my terms. I know I had to slip a sweat game, but not enough. I want one more. And I'm not saying that's going to be the poetic uh, finish, but we got to have that in our life and have that vision, how to finish on our terms because we're not getting any younger. So I want to be able to look back and check the box, baseball, football. I think wrestling, I still need to finish the story of wrestling. Me and The Rock need to get in the ring because I, like, <laughs> you I, the rock. I saw him on Radio Row, by the way. You know, I said, you know, I I just, you know? I just because I only had four days in the ring in WCW in 1995. So, you know, I think. Next year would be the 30-year anniversary of being in the ring. I think me and The Rock may need to finish business, maybe John Cena, but we got to have someone. So I'll let you pick the opponent, but I think WrestleMania, I think we may need to see one more, or maybe not. <laughs> so we'll see. So when you, when you when you talk about like those early, you know, 9-11, you were talking about one of the other groups that were in the building, right? Was it, was it Kelvin Fitzgerald? What was it? Well, Kelvin Fitzgerald, yeah. Kelvin Fitzgerald, they do a lot for the charity work. We do a celebrity charity day every year. We, they raise, they have a can of relief fund. They developed right to 9-11. Howard Lovick and the CEO and his sister Edie developed this can of relief fund and they've given back every year to participating charities. So whether it's Michael Jordan, you mentioned, or whoever the celebrity is, they represent their own foundation. All the proceeds, the commissions that day, they usually about $12 million a year they, they have from the broker commissions. They donate them to other Charity. So, so on 9 11, it's a day of giving instead of, and Canada Cheryl had the most loss, the measurable loss, 730 something employees that were killed. Wow. They get back every year. You know, this past year, we had Nicole Kidman, Keith Urban, all these, Matthew McConaughey, and we do an incredible event every year when the charities benefit and they just get paid it forward. So it's an inspiring story. And Canada Fitzgerald has really embodied rebuilding from the ground. I mean, they, they lost everything. They lost all their employees. London had to take over their London operations. I mean, it's an incredible story called, I think it's called the Unbreakable Bond documentary. Check it out. It's really tells the story of Kenneth Fitzgerald's story from really like losing everything. And a lot of firms banded together to help them out through it. And now they're doing better than ever. So they inspired me to be, and all the fight that I do is really, and you said helpers, you, know, you got to find your helpers like Oklahoma City. When I was in 9-11, when I was at, when I got out of the hospital, I went to the Pier 39, I think it was called. There was another pier where they had all the 9-11 resources. I met these people from Oklahoma City. They were from the bombing from 1995, which I barely remembered about. 
and they were there yeah. to give us a hug. They weren't like a therapist. They weren't, they were just there to give support, emotional support, give a hug, tell them, Hey, we were there six years earlier. And we started this 9-11 program in my foundation uh, that Anthony Gardner, we formed this company called the World Trade Center United Family Group. And we developed a peer support program. We brought 9-11 families to Oklahoma City during their bombing commemoration on April 19th. We had three days of activities, peer support. And they would come up Oklahoma to New York on our 9-11 anniversary. We did it for about almost 20 years. And then COVID yeah. cut. COVID, COVID kind of stopped. So we haven't done it in three, four years, but it was an incredible program that, you know, was not one size fits all when it comes to therapy. But the fact is these weren't people that were mental health professionals. They were just people that had been through a traumatic experience. And I did one for Parkland. We brought all those uh, bombings, uh, all the survivors from different tragedies, Boston Marathon from uh, 9-11, Vegas, you name it, down Aurora from the Colorado from that shooting all the way to Parkland to help out the survivors as well. And the family members, Freddie Kudenberg, who lost his daughter, Jamie, on in Parkland on uh, February 14th in 2018. And also the survivors that went through this traumatic uh, experience and their lives were never you know, the same again. Uh, we had this peer support group just telling our stories like I'm doing today. And it helped a lot of people. I'm proud of that. That's probably one of the most proudest things I've done is bring all those people together and pay it forward. We always said that I got help from Oklahoma City to help me, but I want to pay it forward to help out the next generation of people who were, fortunately, shootings happen every day now. And it's like the yeah. population has exploded. We were very sort of, uh, to be about 10, 20 years ago. Now it's almost like everybody's impacted by mass violence. And that's what's scary in this country. But we need to yeah. our people by telling our stories. Because we're the ones who are telling the story. And 9 11, you know, a lot of our programs around telling the history of 9 11, we created authentic first hand accounts that are in the museum. And in programs curriculum, so we call ourselves the 9-11 Education Trust, and we develop 9-11 curriculum materials for kids all around the country. And my so cool Sparta has developed that. So I'm proud of that because there's a living, a legacy that generations to come, you know? So Yeah. Let's talk about the last two things. One is, you know, the incredible. I mean, if you have not gone to the 9-11 Memorial in New York, I highly recommend it. It is emotional. It is unbelievable as, as a person who just kind of like when Kennedy was shot, everyone knows where they were at on 9-11, right? Like it's one of those things in our lifetime, people are going to go like, hey, where were you on the morning of 9-11? And right. I'll never forget it, right? I was having, I owned 1-800-GOT-JUNK in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And I was, you know, those very early in the morning there, I had had a 6.30 a.m. breakfast or, eight, you know, maybe a 6 a, yeah, 6.30 a.m. because we were two hours difference and so it was 8 30 in the morning and you know one of the tvs kind of flashed on this situation so so you know it's a, it's a it's a it's an interesting thing i i i knew more what was going on in phoenix arizona at this little cafe than you did yep. sitting you know uh 100 yards from impact right like because people all of a sudden you lose communication you lose all these things and we've got television coverage we and we've got all sorts of stuff right all yeah. our tvs at all they were yep. at the old school building yep. Yep. So you go like, man, it, it's weird how that works as you talked about. So the two things I want to talk about, you know, your whole life, it's set back to come back. It's, here's a setback. And, you know, this is, this is one of the things that athletes do incredibly well. You know, there's many stories of professional athletes that had a setback. And, and the reason that they, they, they come back so strong is that if you've been training for, for six, seven years of your life, and often, you know, by the time you're in the pros, you've got 10, 12, you're so good 
that you've always played, you've always played on all-star teams, you get picked up for extra work and, and extra play. And then this is the first time, like, you, you tear a meniscus in an ACL. And, hey, this is the first time I haven't done activity for, for six months of my life. And so what can I do? And you're like, hey, I can, I can bring you in, Mike, and we can put 15 pounds on your upper body while we're rehabilitating your lower half. And, and we can study, and you start studying, like, all the, all the little details of, of your position because you can study film. You can look at this. You can look at that. And all these things that you probably take for granted when you're physically totally healthy, all of a sudden you've got to look at everything. You know, in baseball, the pitchers who got hurt, they would take a step back and look so detailed at their mechanics. And a lot of times, you know, an upper body injury. And then I would take them as a strength coach and put 15, 20 pounds on their lower half. Yep. And all of a sudden they come out of rehabilitation throwing four to five miles an hour harder because They've in, increased their mechanics and they've increased their lower half strength. And now it's so important to get all those things working in synergy. And they don't want to risk being out of synergy for a second because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a recipe for another injury. And they come back at such a better player because of this setback. So these comebacks happen. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that, but I also want to talk about a word you used before to me, which is survivor guilt. Walk us through quickly, just how, you know, what do you mean by survivor guilt and, and what did you do about it? Well, Kenneth Fitzgerald, I had accepted an offer with Canada right before 9-11, didn't take it, accepted it, made all the sense of the world, whatever happened, I stayed with Credit Swiss first, had a great boss and a lot of stories behind why I stayed at Credit Swiss, but Canada was a better offer. And I turned it down and I remember the first thing I thought of when the world trades, I was in a hospital, the first thing I thought of is, oh my God, all the people I knew there died, and actually, and if you and if you'd have, and if you'd have taken the job, you'd have died, right? Well, a lady that I was going to work for Virginia Beachyara, and you can look up her story. Virginia actually survived, but she was burned on sixty percent of her body. She was in St. Barnabas for about a week and a half, two weeks. She's had like oh god, like sixty skin grafts. I mean, Virginia, well, her story is incredible. I, I could tell you for half an hour that story, but she was the boss. She survived, and it inspired me that she survived and and made it through that, but a lot of people did not. So I had this incredible guilt about, and so, you know, the first group I was part of was a bereavement group, believe it or not, I was a survivor. They cater or they contacted me. I just got out of the hospital and they were, they knew I was calling about some of their employees and they had this group in Lido Beach, Long Island. And I go there, it's all widows. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I feel out of place. I'm with widows. I'm a survivor. And the first thing they were telling me that some of the widows were like, you survived. Why are you here? You know, it was an awkward first meeting, but you know what? We became a close knit group, but by the second, third meeting, they want to know, Hey, what'd you see that day? What did, what, what was yeah. the world trade center? And we became like best chummy. And I made a lot of deep, I have a friend, Felice Zaslow, Z-A-S-L-O-W, who just wrote a book about her experience. And it's incredible. It's out there. If you look on Amazon, Tell I'm in the book too. It just tells that story about her husband, Ira, who was lost. He was Lehman Brothers. He just happened to be getting coffee. He was on the 25th floor, I believe. It was on the, uh, so he was one of the guys in the elevator when the building. So one of those like wrong places at the wrong time. But it's, that's how I got started in sort of the therapy. And then I found the Oklahoma City folks as well. And it took me on my journey. But yeah, what a journey it's been. But, but that's about so you really to give back. And I felt like I had to do something to help others, you know? Well, you've done a lot of good for a lot of people, Mike. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. And, 
And it's fun that you've, you've wrapped that around sport, around athletics, around our veterans who love sports and love athletics. And, and man, I, it's probably the one thing I love about sport. Nothing else brings people together, right? I mean, it's, you know, we talk about soccer and football and, you know, I get a kick out of people going, oh yeah, Super Bowl, it's so fun. Da, da, da. And then you realize like, hey, there's, you know, a few, almost a hundred million who are going to watch the Super Bowl. And then you've got hundreds of millions that are going to watch the Premier League Championship. Like, they, it's like crazy. Like, like, sport just brings people to a whole other we're thing. Still, and we're putting pretty together. Two movies, the Field of Dreams. I love that Field of Dreams scenario. Yeah. Like, and I think Vision Quest, when I was a kid, that yeah. movie, Aladdin Swain. And uh, so when I was training for the boxing, I mean, I was COVID. I, we couldn't go to the gyms. Remember, like, you're all over. Yeah. I did that loud and swing. I was doing that jump rope. I was doing it outside in my backyard. I was did doing you have the rubber suit on. Did you, did you put the rubber suit on? Did you put yeah, the, I uh, the rubber you know? suit? But I know Frank Jasper played Brian Shoot. I'm going to see him in Wyoming. I'm doing a keynote in August and I can't wait to meet the shoot. He was the guy that uh, maybe I'll wrestle shoot. Maybe that'd be my wrestling opponent. But I tell you what, you know, great, great. It was an awesome movie, but I love the, how he gets into vision quest. And I said, all these things I do is my vision quest. Playing and playing football is my vision quest. I was going to achieve it somehow, some way, but I was going to find a way. And like I said, this year I got shut out of the celebrity sweat flag football game, as you know, this year, because I got the Jersey Shore. They wanted to be in the game and Paulie D and, and Snooky and all yeah. that. And I got have enough influencers to, or have enough, uh, on my Instagram to get into the game, but I'm going to play next year in New Orleans and do it and go out my way and I'm going to find a way. So my vision quest is get back in the gym and get in shape. And I'm going to hopefully, uh, you know, the story where I lit up Frankie Munoz from Malcolm in the middle two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can look that one up on Amazon too, where yeah, I you might've had a hundred pounds on Frankie and you like, I did, but he did a spin move on me. And I think it doing a spin move on me and trying to show me up. I showed him a little bit of what football really feels like. So he's an ex-squad driver. He's a race car driver. So, you know, I got him a little bit, threw him down, ripped his pants. I don't know how his pants ripped, but, but you never know. But I want to go out next year, have one last moment on the field, whatever that moment's going to be. But that's, that's my mission quest, right? And There you go. Hey, look. Look for Mike Dempsey's vision quest coming to him, coming to here. It'll be New Orleans next year. It'll be uh, Brian shoot inside the ring. Maybe the rock officiating. I don't think he's getting back in there. Too much. He's got, he's got a lot that you got a lot to lose, but listen for everybody out there. Always great to have people as you know, winners when shown data that they are losing, find a way to win winners, find a way. Always thrilled to have my good friend, Mike Dempsey on here for everybody out there. Thank you for joining us. Winners find a way every Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific. And you will see that on LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live, and our Leadership at Eat YouTube channel. Mike, thanks so much. Any parting words for people out there today if they going through some things, piece of advice? want to give one last shout out to a guy named Kevin Guidry. We, he play, he was a football player for the commanders and Kevin has a gym called find a way fitness. And it's around the corner for me and yeah. you know, play for flag football. And Kevin, I adopted this find a way and every, and I'll tell you what, for two months I was in that gym preparing for Super Bowl, And I found a way to get either that workout in at eight 30, nine 30 or four 30 or five 30. But his mission is always about find a way. There's no excuses. You cannot make excuses. Never miss a Monday. And again, shout out to the old Find A Way Fitness crew because you know what? They inspired me about, hey, you got to beat out of 53 this year, but I'll always find a way to be at my best. So that's- Love it. 
I love it. Kevin, good name with that gym. I love it, man. Like, that's awesome. All right, for everybody else, we'll see you next time on The Winners Find A Way. Organizations come to me all the time with challenges of execution and communication with their teams. We help build a system through Bloom Growth and software that gives them simplification and prioritization. I teach, facilitate, and coach these organizations to literally double their value. If you're interested in gaining your individual and organizational growth, please email me at trent at leadershipity.com or click the link below and book a 15-minute call on my Calendly.